This is Justin Michael Williams, and welcome to the Kingdom Podcast. This is for everyone. All beliefs are welcome here. And so it doesn't matter if you call it God, spirit, the universe, crystal, science, or unicorns. You are welcome here. This is our moment to connect to something greater. This is our moment to remember how powerful we really are. Welcome to the kingdom. We begin each session with a prayer. Let's begin. God, Spirit, Universe, all that is, all that ever has been, all that ever will be, we thank you. (laughs) We thank you for opening our hearts and minds, for giving us the space and the Wi-Fi connection and all of this to come together today. We know that so many people in the world are struggling right now, Lord, and we ask you to just Keep them in your mind and in your prayers and help all of us overcome. And we pray that in this moment that we can be well and that as we are well, we spread this spirit of wellness out into all of the world and to everyone who we touch and everyone who needs it. Physically, emotionally, energetically, and spiritually, keep us sound so that we may be the beacons and vessels of light and hope and positivity and possibility that we know this world needs right now. Thank you for filling our spirits. Thank you for giving us the presence to come here today. We know there are so many things that we can be doing and we are here today in the honor, in your honor, in the honor of spirit connecting to each other and to something greater. God, Spirit, Universe, all that is, all that ever has been, all that ever will be, we thank you. And right now, we ask that our hearts and minds be open so that we can hear the exact message that we are meant to hear today. So this is your moment now. I'm going to be silent for about 60 seconds for you to welcome in your personal prayer. You can say a prayer from your religion or just set a clear intention for today's time. But set that intention, asking for what you need, claiming your power right here from your heart, starting now. all of us unifying our prayers together in this quantum field of possibility. We expand our space and our presence out into the infinite realms, down deep into the earth as we expand out from our hearts. Ashe, Aho, Salam, Amen, Satnam, Om. Thank you. Let's begin. (laughs) Ah, I just get so emotional when I'm with you all. (laughs) I just feel so much love in my heart for this incredible community that we're building here together. It really is uh, 
so special to me and so special to all of us. And thank you all for being here. Having the gift of your presence and your ears and your minds is an honor and a privilege I do not take for granted. I, I do a lot of work prepping us for these to make sure that your time is worthwhile, so I thank you. And today's session is going to be nothing short of powerful and important for you. Because today, we are talking about the power of justice. The power of justice. And I have been, to be honest, just a little bit nervous to bring this topic here to us here at the kingdom. Because a part of what it is that I was wanting to do as we come here is to make sure that with everything going on in the world, we have a space to not escape, but to really heal and integrate ourselves as we're on, you know, this mission and this journey with everything happening in the world. But I thought given the happenings right now and given the upcoming election, and I know so many of you are outside of the United States, but I know that you're seeing the global unrest, that we can talk deeply today about the power of justice in a way that actually elevates us and opens our hearts and opens our minds into our ability to take action for our lives, for our families, for our communities, for the planet, and for one another. And so we are here today to go deep into the shadow, but not just to go deep into the shadow to break us down, but deep so that we can together overcome, so that we can overcome. And, you know, we have a short session today. Normally I do this. I've been giving a bit of this talk in a lot of companies and corporations and organizations lately. And uh, we have a limited time that we have together today. Normally when I do this talk, it's a couple hours long and we're here together for about an hour or so. We finish at about 75 minutes always for those of you who are new. And I just want you to know that I'm going to teach you everything I can in this limited amount of time, in this limited space that we have together today. I'm going to focus on the most important things, but I know there are going to be some of you who want to take this further with additional support and additional tools and additional conversation to help you step into your own power and the power of liberation for all of us. And so at the end of our session today, I promise I'm going to tell you about something called the liberation experience, which is the next incredible thing our community is putting together. And I can't wait to tell you about that. But for now, let us dig deeply into these teachings today. So as we go into this, what I really want to talk about, and this is global, this is for all of us, is about finding our authentic voice in the movement for equality. Finding our authentic voice in the movement for equality. And when I say that, what's really important to name is that the revolution, the real revolution, starts inside. Many of you have heard me say this over and over, but you know that what I believe truly is that we can defund the police, we can elect a new president, we could burn down the whole school-to-prison pipeline, we could try to build the whole thing anew. But if we haven't done the revolutionary work inside, if we haven't changed within, then we'll just keep internalizing the same oppression we're fighting against and we'll keep building the same oppressive systems over and over. We couldn't do anything different. It would be our only thing that would be possible for us to do if we haven't done the inner work. 
and you all know this. I've mentioned this before here on the podcast. I mean, on, on the podcast. P.S. I slipped podcast in because the Kingdom podcast is officially live secretly, but y'all can know if you go. Anyway, more about that later in your email, but all the episodes are starting to go up on our podcast. And um, there's a special episode that got put up this morning. And what I want to name here that I've said is that this sounds woo-woo at a certain extent, right? Like, oh, the work has to happen inside. And I talked about the, you know, societal changes. But how many of us have been in a relationship, whether it's romantic or not, and we've at some point decided that we want to get out of that relationship because it wasn't good for us. And then what happens is we get out of the relationship We end up dating a new person or getting in a relationship, whether it's even not romantic with a new person, and then soon realize that we're in the same damn relationship, but with a different person. Same person, different pants, right? Different name. And this happens because if we haven't changed internally, this is what I mean by the revolution starts inside. If we haven't changed internally, then we couldn't show up for a relationship differently. This is why the relationship that you have with your parents sometimes looks like with your kids, sometimes looks like with your lover, sometimes it all looks the same because if we haven't changed internally, we can't show up for a relationship differently. And this has to do with your relationship both with yourself, with others, romantically, with the world, with your body, with your job, with your creativity, with your project, if we haven't done the revolutionary work inside then we can't show up for the world differently. And, you know, one of the things that Marianne Williamson always says, who is just an amazing, I had the absolute gift of speaking on stage just after her at an event last year, and she said this incredible thing that I never forgot. She said, you know, of course, a nation, if it wants to change, or a collective, if it wants to change, has to go through the same process of healing that an individual does. Because what is a nation but a collection of individuals? A nation is just a collection of individuals. A community is just a connection of collection of individuals. So if we're not doing the internal work, how could we possibly change the collective? And so here we are wanting to do the inner work. And it doesn't matter which tradition you follow, what self-help book you read, which coach or guru you follow. Everything, this is kind of like everything kind of boils down to these three steps of transformation and everybody has their own different language and lingo but it always boils down to something like this step one being awareness awareness learning and being aware of what's wrong and what's happening step two being alignment aligning yourself with this new thing that you became aware of and how you want to change and step three is action which is not just aligning and being aware and zenning and Buddha, blah, 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 all that out, but to take action and step into your life and the world differently. And so all of this, all of this applies so importantly and so specifically to our mission of social justice and social change. And so a little story, y'all know I like to give you some personal stories here. This is little Justin. Some of you have seen this before. How do I look? (laughs) The same. So this is little Justin, you know, and I grew up, many of you know, in a home with gunshot holes outside of my house with domestic violence and trauma. And we all have our trauma. We all have our stuff that we're healing and going through. I always say this isn't the oppression Olympics. We all got our stuff, right? Regardless of how privileged or not you grew up with, we all have our conditioning. But the thing that I want to talk to you about today is a little bit different. So many of you will maybe know if you've read some of Stay Woke that my mom is Persian 
and Italian, and my dad is black. Now follow me closely here, okay? Follow, follow me closely. Mom's Persian and Italian, half and half, and my dad's black. And my mom was adopted into an Italian and Spanish family. Okay, you follow me? So she's Persian and Italian, adopted into an Italian family. And what happened in this family, Italian-Spanish family, is when my mom decided to get engaged to my father, it broke our family apart. Our family completely disowned my mom and kicked her out, and she went to go live with my father's family. And the racism that lived literally within my own family tore our family apart to the point where I have nine great aunts and uncles who were my grandma's brothers and sisters, four of which I've never met. Not because they weren't alive when I was alive, not because they didn't live in the same city as me, but because the racism in the family actually caused them to never speak to this side of our family again. And so what ended up happening was two things. One side was this beautiful unfolding, and the other side is a little bit more similar to what we're seeing with this disintegration that's happening in the world today. And I haven't told this story often. So after a little while, after my mom and dad got married, my grandpa, my mom's mom, my papa, who is so amazing and ended up loving me so dearly, and there's my mom right there typing in the chat box, Barbara. And so what happened was my papa and my grandmother, my nana, they went back to the rest of the family and they had their meeting over their big Italian Sunday pasta dinners and said, we're going back. We're welcoming our daughter back. And what happened was half of the family said, if you talk to them, we're never speaking to you again. And the other half of the family said, well, we're coming with you. And so it split the family literally in two. This family that was tight knit, lived on the same block, literally immigrated from Sicily together on a boat, split in half because of racism, down to the point, the grudge was held so deeply, down to the point that they literally, all of them, except for my grandmother, she's the only one still alive because she was the youngest, several of them died and didn't go to each other's funerals because of this. And so in my own family and in my own home, I got to see two very different things. I got to see how racism can cause us to disintegrate in our lives. But then on the side of my family that returned, I got to see this beautiful opening where my grandfather, the same grandfather and grandmother who disowned my mother, ended up helping to raise me and my sisters with the greatest love. My papa was one of the most incredible male figures in my life and loved me with his whole heart. My uncle Peter, who ended up, was also one of the ones who left, ended up coming back and helped put me through college. And the racism in the family, I saw it with my own eyes, healed all the way down to the point where my grandfather was mowing my, gra my black grandmother's lawn, okay? And going over to her house every week with great love and great connection. And so one of the things that I wanna break down here for us is this notion and this concept and this unconscious perspective that we have, that we think that sometimes people won't change, that those people over there, and many of you have seen this in my Ending Racism article, that we think those people over there will never change. Mm -mm, they won't change. But we know they can, and this is why I have so much hope for bringing us together, because I've seen the change in my own bloodline, in my own family. And I want you to remember that people can change. What 
makes people change sometimes though is knowing that we're heading towards something bigger. That we're heading toward a future and a possibility and a space that's bigger than anything that we can imagine for ourselves. And this is called visionary activism. Not just reactionary activism, but visionary activism and social justice. And this is what I am here to do with you all today and help us all step into. Because this is the power that we all deserve to step into right now. And so as we go through this, what I want us to do is go through this with as much consciousness as we possibly can. And we're going to go through this feeling all of our emotions because the conversation that we're going to have today is going to be a little, well, not really that different. I know I take y'all into some deep stuff typically, but it's going to take you into some emotional spaces that may be a little uncomfortable for you. And so here's what we're going to have many check-ins like this throughout our time. You know, normally I do a practice at the end. We're going to do like mini micro 30 second practices all throughout this session today. And so we'll start with the first one right now. So what I'd like you to do is place your hands over your heart. We'll always come back to this. Shut your eyes if you feel comfortable doing so. If you want to keep them open, that's fine. Just kind of blur out your vision and keep a soft gaze. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Again, a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And I want you right now to think of one word that describes how you're feeling right now. How are you feeling? One word that describes it. And it could be anything. You can be totally honest with yourself. It could be tired or good or blessed or excited or nervous or whatever. You don't have to perform for us. Name it. And then open your eyes. And if you feel comfortable, I invite you to type whatever it is that you were feeling into the chat box. So type that into the chat box, whatever it was that you were feeling. And we're going to start diving in a little more deeply now as we go into this process together. And I'll see your chat box feelings coming through. And what will happen is throughout this entire process, we're going to keep having these check-ins to really name our journey of the emotional state that we're going through as we have this time and this experience together. So I see them coming through. We see peaceful and grateful and enlivened and grateful. And I feel tight and hopeful and tired and anxious and scattered and hopeful and all that dejected and flowery and unsettled. Beautiful. So just pin that and remember that this is where we're starting. Emotional inside. This is beautiful. And so this is the process we're going through today together. This four-step process. Number one is called entering the shadow. Number two is the power of truth. Number three is having messy conversations. And number four is learning how we might take action individually and collectively. And we're going to actually have a little bit of a messy conversation here today. And we're going to have the capacity to hold our emotional state all the way through this. And we're going to come through it together like we always do. So let's begin with step one, which is about entering the shadow. And I call this the courage to be uncomfortable. 
Now, one of the things about shadow work, so many of you have seen me or heard me mention shadow work, and Robert Masters, who's gonna be a part of the liberation experience with us, is actually one of my greatest teachers on shadow work. And what happens when we talk about shadow is it's the stuff in our lives that we typically lean away from, and the more we lean away from it, the more of a shadow it casts behind us, on the wall of our lives behind us. But our shadows end up being like a hands of a puppet string, like puppet strings or the hands of the puppet master that end up actually controlling our lives from the backgrounds. And if we don't recognize our shadow, if we don't step into or lean into the discomfort of the shadow, then we can never step into change. And everything that I'm talking about today, you're going to hear me talk about it from both a personal, individual perspective and both a collective. Because like I said, we believe in this community that it's all interwoven. They can't be separate. It would be a delusion to think so. And so we use this kind of infinity symbol to say that this individual and this collective come together. And as we come into that center point, we recognize that I'll never forget when one of my friends and teachers, Sianna Sherman, told me this, the bigger our light, oftentimes the bigger our shadow. The bigger the light, the bigger the shadow it casts. And so change and transformation can't just be about the external work. It can't just be about love and light. It can't just be about compassion. It can't just be about meditation and listening to podcasts and motivational speaking and motivational memes. It can't just be about that. That's half of the equation. Because as you're doing that, the shadow is growing. And so we have to learn how to lean into our shadow so we can shine light upon those places. And often when you know something's in the shadow, sometimes you're completely unconscious of it, okay? This is how it's shadow work is different than therapy, and we'll do this again in the liberation experience directly with Robert. But shadow work is oftentimes the things we don't even recognize are happening behind us. But we know that we're in control of the shadow when somehow we end up in the same loop, same emotional patterns, same thought processes over and over and over and over. You know the shadow's in control because it's trying to get your attention. Okay, And so what happens is when we have this shadow work is what we do, why I call this entering the shadow, is instead of leaning away, we lean into it. We move toward it. And you're going to have to, to do any meaningful work as it relates to social justice, activism, or change, you are going to have to learn to get a little uncomfortable. Because if you run away every time it gets uncomfortable, we all stay stuck. So let us continue as we move into that experience. And we're gonna start with that right now, okay? And we're going into what's called the power of truth. And I'm gonna give us just, this is not gonna be a whole damn history lesson, but I'm gonna give us a little bit of context here about what I call the real American journey. And I know there are many of you all from other countries here today, and I want you to listen carefully so that you can get this perspective on what's happening and also how it applies directly to your experience as well. So I have some notes here that you'll see me looking at so I can get these dates proper, okay? So here's the deal, all right? Follow me. And as I'm saying this, I want you to listen with your whole body and your whole being. Don't just listen with your head. I want you to listen with your heart. Here it is. In 1619, I'm going to put this up really quick. 1619. First slaves were brought to the United States and they were not freed until 1865. Feel me when I say this. 
That's two and a half centuries. Two and a half centuries of slavery. So I want to put this in perspective. Think about the harm and death that we all know was caused by the Holocaust, which was 12, a 12 year period from Hitler gaining his first position of leadership all the way to the end of the Holocaust was 12 years. And think about the ricochet and the reverberation, the damage that's been done for that 12 year cycle. This is 250 plus years. And the white American experience was built on this and the black American experience was built on this. And what this created in the United States is what Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote the book called Cast, which is my favorite book of this year called Cast, is the American caste system. Now, we often don't think in America that we have a caste system, but we in fact do have a caste system. The caste system, racism, is just a symptom of our caste system. So whereas India, they have a caste system. In South African apartheid, they have a caste system. In Nazi Germany, there was a caste system. In the United States, we don't like to think of ourselves this way in the US, but we have a caste system. It is white at the top, black at the bottom, and everyone in between, depending on your proximity to whiteness or blackness or how much you assimilate to whiteness or blackness, you find your ranking there in the caste system of the United States and of America, okay? And so as we go through this, when you think of this timing, what happened when African-Americans were freed, I'm putting air quotes up, from slavery, they were offered 40 acres and a mule. Because quite frankly, when you say freed, the question becomes freed to what? When you have an entire population of people who really get me when I'm saying this so you can understand why things are the way they are today and why they look the way they are today. When you have an entire population of people for who for over 200 years were not allowed to participate in education, not allowed to read or write, not because they didn't know how to read or write or they weren't capable of reading and writing. I mean, I mean, not because they were dumb or weren't capable, but because they were not allowed to, they would be killed if they read or write, who were not allowed to participate in the economy are now freed. To what? So they were offered 40 acres and a mule to say everybody gets some land and you can have your own place to start. But people so badly did not want African-Americans to have that freedom that the state troops, federal troops, I'm reading my notes here, had to be brought into the United States from 1870, from 1865 to 1877. The federal troops had to be here to enforce, to make sure this was happening and to make sure that people weren't forced back into slavery. And this period was known as what's called the Reconstruction. And there was this era, this moment where African-Americans were starting to thrive. We saw the, the build of Black Wall Street and all this incredible black wealth being built. This is when HBCUs, historically black colleges, were being built, okay, all during this time. Well, 1877, the troops leave because there was new legislation happening. And these laws were passed called the Black Code Laws. This is what they're called, okay? And when this happened... All the Black Wall Street, all the towns, all the things that were being built by Black wealth, white people literally went in, and when I say literally, I mean it quite as I'm saying it, 
and burned their entire cities down to the ground and then took away the 40 acres and a mule. Burned all of it. It's all gone. It's all on the ground, done in ashes, okay? And then the black code laws were passed. So let me read to you from history.com the actual definition of black code laws. This is what they were literally defined as by the government. Listen, black code laws were restrictive laws that were designed to limit the freedom of African Americans and ensure their availability as cheap labor force after slavery was abolished during the Civil War. These laws were created to make sure they stayed as cheap labor and designed to ensure a subpar economic reality for African Americans. That's what it was named as, why they were created. So there's no question about that. And those same laws, I want you to follow me in time here right now, in 1877, stayed intact all the way to 1864. So it's almost another hundred, I mean, 1964, almost another hundred years. Many of you were alive in 1964. And those black code laws got rolled over into what are now called and known as the Jim Crow laws. So let me put this in real context for you all, okay? Just to put this in timing, because I want you to feel this. This picture that you're seeing on the screen right now is of my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, Warren, and my great-grandmother, my grandma Vallejo, we called her. She lived in Vallejo. And that's her and him in the middle right there. Now, as you're looking at this, this seems like, okay, these people were so long ago. My great-grandmother... I was at her house for Christmas and until I was like 18, 19, I don't even, probably 20-something. She passed away when I was in college. I knew her well. She was born 99 years ago, died when she was in her 90s, and I knew her and was at her house multiple times a month, every week. My mom knows her. This is someone who I know. Telling this for this reason, okay? Her mother, follow me on this, her mother, who is my, my dad's great-grandma, who my dad also knew. This woman died real late in her age. My dad was at her house. My dad has pictures with her. This woman was raised by a slave, by someone who was born in slavery. So when we think about this, okay, this is not that long ago. We think slavery and all this is something that happened in the past. My dad knew this woman his great-grandmother, who was raised by someone who was born a slave. And so when you put this in your historical context, okay, you think this person who was a slave, who was raised by slave, 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 raised this person. This slave never knew how to read or write, didn't have anything, and raised this family. And that family then raised my, my great-grandmother, who then my grandparents, and then my dad, and now me. And so it's no wonder to think, well, gosh, how come there's nobody to help them with their homework? How come they're struggling in school? How come they can't do all these things? How come, of course, I'm the first person in, in my family on that side to go to college? Because just that close was slaves. So I need you to feel that in your heart and think about that depending on where you are. I know we have a lot of different races and ethnicities here in your own context. 
Black people don't have 400-year-old jewels and priceless artwork and property that's been owned for hundreds of years or 100 years or even 60 years. The generation of African Americans that are alive right now, today, me, my parents, grandparents, are the first generation alive in the U.S. who've ever, ever had the opportunity to ever even start to build what's called generational wealth and freedom. Let's check in with how you feel. Hands over the heart. Take a breath. Breath out. See if you can name one word that describes how you're feeling now. And then open your eyes and type that into the chat box. So the reason why this power of truth is so important to name for us right now is because white America was built on this and black America was built on this. White America and black America was built on this and all of America is built on this caste system and it's created two very different realities for all of us together, okay? And so what I want you to know is that no matter who started it, no matter who points the finger of blame, we are exactly who was meant to be alive at this time. I want you to feel me and look me in the eyes as I'm saying this to you. We are the revolution. This is our time. Our generation is exactly who was meant to be here because we are the first generation with the ability to do this work and have these conversations. And the first thing we have to do is enter the shadow and own and know that we have had different experiences in this country, regardless of who started it, regardless of where the fingers of blame point, if we want to end this and change the world for the future generations, healing forward and backward, we have to come together and do this work. And a big part of why I've even started the liberation experience, which again, I'll tell you about at the end, is because even though we all have work to do, it's different work, sometimes. For example, when we drop, as you see in the emotions here, when we drop the truth of racism into our emotional bodies, black people often feel total hopelessness, sometimes, often feel anger, often feel rage, often feel resigned that nothing can change. And white people, I'm just being simple for these two, often feel those things, but sometimes feel, like we see here, guilt and shame and despair and confusion and perfectionism. And so if we don't process these different things in our own communities at the same time, then every time we try to reconnect, we end up missing each other because we haven't worked on our own stuff to do. And then sometimes there's work that we have to do together, but we'll talk more about the Liberation Experience program a little later. Now, let me just give you two more things about this truth, as we're seeing what's happening with the police force and all of this. This is historical fact. Nothing here, I've been very clear to say, everything that I'm telling you, I've been saying almost without opinion, but I'm just naming the facts, okay? The United States police force was started as slave catchers. There was no such thing, there was no such word as police officers in the United States of America until 
the end of the Civil War, right, or I'm sorry, right at the end of the Civil War, and what was happening was all the slaves were escaping to the North and also escaping down to Florida before Florida was a territory of the United States. And they hired this group of people with guns to be slave catchers, which that same exact group, same organization, got rolled into the police force. That is a historical fact. And so when we're seeing all of this happening today, it's again, not to point blame, not to point shame, but to look at the truth and to really name it, to know that our entire country, this land of the free, has been built on this foundation. And if we can't look at that, then we'll never be able to change it. So let's go a little bit deeper. This is one thing that I wanted to make sure I named to you all with everything that I'm telling you is that this, this thing that this little girl was holding I thought was fantastic. It says, we said black lives matter. We never said only black lives matter. We know that all lives matter. We just need your help with black lives matter because black lives are in danger. I thought this was so powerful and this really names the truth of what's happening in our country right now. So today, now, I want us to get into this section of messy conversations. And we're gonna talk for a moment, okay, about the difference between white people and whiteness, and this is important for people of color and white people to know, and the difference between the individual and the collective. And we're gonna talk about white privilege, and we're also gonna talk about white supremacy. And this is a part of our messy conversation. So as your emotions come up as we're talking about this, know that I'm purposely naming it as it is so that you can feel what you're feeling and you can imagine why it's so hard for people of all genders and ages and races to step into this work in their own way. So let's jump in with white privilege. So privilege, I love this from Jenea Future Khan, who's the founder of Black Lives Matter in Canada. She says, privilege isn't about what you've gone through. It's about what you haven't had to go through. And Leila Saad continues with this incredible quote that says, it's important to understand that white privilege is separate from but can intersect with class privilege and gender privilege and sexuality privilege and age privilege and able-bodied privilege or any other type of privilege. This is the thing. While you experience hardships and oppression in your life from other identities and experiences, you do not experience these things because of your skin color. So I want to break this down for us right now in a very clear way, okay? So many people will say, well, I'm not privileged. I grew up poor or I'm gay or I'm you know, queer or trans or I'm this or I'm that or I grew up, I'm a Jew or I'm this. All the things that we can say about why we're not privileged. But when we change that context to what, what Jenea Future Khan had said, I'm gonna go back to it, is privilege isn't about what you've gone through. It's about what you haven't had to go through. So this is a really important thing because you can see that we all have privilege. I'm a black queer man. So obviously I have a different level of privilege than some others, but I'm also cisgendered, neurotypical. I have, my entire body is intact, right? I have so many other privileges. I have money, I have this. So we all have privilege. All of us have some level of privilege. 
Okay. I think right now what they're saying is like, if you, somebody to name that they really don't have privilege is somebody who's poor, black and trans. Okay. That is like, you can then tell me I'm not, I don't, you know? And so you have to name that we all have it. Me too. And when we understand this, then we understand that it's not this finger of blame and shame, but it's really naming and understanding that white privilege is a thing. And I'm going to give you guys a personal story that I haven't really told too often here that I think is kind of important for us to name and for us to talk about. So here's the the true story here. So when I was leaving to go to college, my father, I'll never forget this moment in my entire life. So my father, I was, I got a full ride academic scholarship to go to UCLA. And when I got the scholarship to go to UCLA, I was leaving and my dad said to me, which I'll never forget, he said, son, I need you to remember. And I'm going to say it with the language that he said it to me. So you, you all have to excuse me here in our kingdom church today, but I'm going to say it how it was. He said, when you go to this school, you can't do all the things these white kids are doing. And I'm looking at him like, Dad, this is a thing of the past. You know, I grew up in a town called Pittsburgh, California, that is one of the most diverse cities in the United States. I literally thought racism was like over, like when I was a kid. And just context-wise, like the city I grew up in, I always say like, oh, gunshot holes and this and that. I'm so happy I grew up where I grew up. First of all, I wouldn't be where I, who I am today. But second, it's the 12th most diverse city in the United States, or it was when I was younger. And so when we were kids, like I was the, the secretary of the Filipino American club. I'm not Filipino and that was normal, but we were doing it right. We were learning from the Filipino elders and honoring their culture and being in their assemblies. I was in the Latino student union. We had white people in the black student union, black people in the white student union. It was like normal in our city. It's the most beautiful diversity that we've ever had. I think of, you know, one story that I recognize this when I went to college was I was with some girl, these, one of these white girls that I was with at school, and I was like, oh my God, you know what I want? I want a churro. And she was like, a churro? What's a churro? And I was like, you don't know what a churro is? And she was like, no. And I was, and I was like, do you know what a quinceanera is? And she's like, no. And I was like, oh my God, like, I'm realizing that people grow up in these boxes because these were things that I grew up around. So anyway, little side note. So my dad, okay, I'm leaving to go to college, last day, getting ready to drive off. And he says these words exactly. I need you to remember that no matter how much you learn, no matter where you go to school, no matter what you're wearing, no matter how smart you are, and no matter how much money you make, if the cops pull you over, you're still just another nigga to them. And I looked at him like, what? Do you know what I mean? I was just like, what is like, what is this? You know what I mean? And I, and I was, I was thinking in that time, oh my God, like my dad is so old school, right? So fast forward and I'm in LA and I see some of my college friends like Rachel's here to say, and I see Diaris is saying the white student union. It wasn't the white student union. It was like the Irish something, or I just said it to be that clear. It was like, you know, people that was a very white, like the Italian student union or whatever. And so the, the true story is I get to college And I am going to yoga in the morning. I had just got off of a flight and I had traveled to be an ambassador of peace for UCLA, okay? I just got back from a trip to China to be an ambassador of peace with UCLA, which two people who are here were as well, Diaris and Rachel. I get back and the next morning I get in my car to go to yoga at six in the morning. 
I get ready to go to yoga. I walk out of my Lululemons. I get into the car and I pull out and and then I all of a sudden hear these sirens. And I'm thinking, what? You know, like, what's going on? And next thing I know, the cop comes over and he's like, you know why I pulled you over? And I'm like, no, being very polite. No, actually he said, you didn't stop long enough at that stop sign. And I'm like, okay. He's like, let me see your driver's license and your ID. So I had just got off of a flight the night before, late, and I left my wallet inside my travel bag. My apartment that I lived in was right there. Like you could see it from where we were from where we were at. And I said, oh my gosh, officer, I just got out of a flight. I don't have my, he said, are you telling me you don't have ID? I said, no, I, I, it's right in my house. We can go together to get it. He said, get out of the car, hands up. Next thing you know, I am handcuffed behind my back, gun out, put into the back of a police car in my Lululemons, y'all. Like clearly I wasn't doing anything, okay? And handcuffed in the back of the police car. And I'm luckily, because I'm so sensitive, I just start crying. You know, I'm just crying and crying and crying. And I get in the back of the car and he's just such an asshole. And he comes out and then next thing you know, he, he lets me out and he's telling me, all right, I gave him my driver's license number. He got my info. And then he is like about to take the handcuffs off of me and he tells me to step forward. And as I step forward, he just puts his foot out and trips me and I fall on the ground with my hands behind my back with my hands handcuffed behind my back. He then pulls me up by the handcuffs, undoes the handcuffs and said, you probably should get out of here now. And I was like, oh my God, like a mess, okay? Just a mess. And I I don't tell this story too often. And in that moment, I called my dad and I told him and he said, thank God you cried. (laughs) Thank God you cried because that could have been a lot worse. And I just will never forget that moment. In that moment, I knew that my dad was right. That the way that I was experienced in that moment, a college student who had just got back the night before from being an ambassador of peace for the entire college, was treated like I was a criminal. And we see this with everyone. Barack Obama, you could become the president of the United States and they're still asking for your birth certificate. You can be Serena Williams, the greatest athlete in the world, and still experience the birth trauma that African-American women experience, which doesn't happen to African women in in the other parts of the black diaspora. It's just to African-American women. And so I'm naming this to tell you all that the reason why white people often have so much trouble identifying with being racist or white supremacist is because you all do not have the experience of always having to be identified with the collective. This is a white privilege. And the fact that you're unaware of it is part of what keeps the privilege in in place. It's part of the white supremacy that keeps it in place. So understand me when I say this, and I say it with love, okay, with so much love, because we're waking up to this, is you as a white person, you can be poor and you can overcome it. You can, you can assimilate, you can grow, you can change in all these ways and you never usually have to be identified automatically with the collective. People of color don't have that privilege. We can be all those things. We could be poor, we could be gay, we could be Jewish, we could be any other thing that you can name as a privilege or a lack thereof. And we could overcome them and we still have this skin suit on that can never be overcome and shouldn't have to be overcome, but should be accepted for what it is. 
And so this is a super important thing for us to just name and to know and to own. And this is why I want you to hear me, everybody, when I'm saying this, black people, white people, everyone else listening, listen. Good white people, good white identified people are the ones who should be doing this work. This work isn't for the white supremacists who are with torches and guns and Confederate flags. Eventually it could be for them. But the reason why it's so hard for you as good white people to think that you're part of the problem, even when you have black friends or black kids or dated black people or black coworkers or whatever, is because of this. White people are not the problem. It's whiteness that is the problem. Understand me. It's not about individual acts of meanness. Racism is not about that. It's about whiteness. And what whiteness has done throughout the entire world, the harm and the incredible things, there's been both, that has happened throughout the world. But white people aren't used to identifying with that collective of whiteness. And so when you recognize that you're a part of that system, Regardless of how nice you are, regardless of which color skin your kids are, regardless of all of it, when you recognize that, then you start to become a part of the solution. And I say that because I need my people of color to understand this too. This is not about us blaming and shaming white people. White people are fantastic, many of them. I have so many white, my family's white, (laughs) you know what I mean? And this is why I know this, okay? This is why I know this, because I grew up with a family that literally, like blonde hair, blue eye cousins. And so I know that white people are great. I know that most people are good. And I know that people can change. And so people of color, indigenous people, black people, we can't be pointing the finger at white people. It's whiteness that we're breaking down. And I want you to understand, yes, sorry, said it here, whiteness is not about your culture, cultural heritage or skin color. It's about power. Because check this out. This is something from Cast. You guys are going to love. You all are going to love. There's the author, Isabel Wilkerson, was talking to this African woman. And I want you to hear this, okay? And you'll, all of you who've been abroad or ever will know this to be true, okay? This African, African woman from African said to the author, There's no black people in Africa. And the author's like, what do you mean there's no black people in Africa? And she's like, there's no black people in Africa. There's people that are Ghanaian. There's people that are Nigerian. There's people that are Yoruba. There's people that are all these different ethnicities, but you only become black when you go to the United States. And they also said there's no white people in Europe. Anybody who's been to Europe knows this. They don't identify as white. They say the Italians, the Swedes, the Dutch, the Danish, the Spanish. You're only white when you come to America and you enter the American caste system. So you have to recognize that we created this shit, y'all. And so the problem isn't, again, with the individual people. What's happened because of racism? Listen to me very closely. What's happened because of racism is we have all in America been disconnected from the truth of our humanity. We've been disconnected from our cultures. White people have been thought to believe that they're white without connecting to the roots of who they are. Black people have been disconnected from their African roots and their heritage. 
thinking that we're black, we've been disconnected from the truth of who we are and disconnected from each other. And my mission here with the liberation experience and all the work that we're going to be doing together over this next year is to bring us together, to not just talk about race, not just to talk about racism, but to end it. I want actually, as I'm skipping through, this is a good check-in moment. Hands over your heart. Notice how you feel. Check in. How do you feel? Be honest. And I'm just going to read this very quickly, and I won't talk about it too much, about white supremacy. White supremacy is a system that you've been born into. It's not about individual acts of meanness. This is from Leila Saad. It's not about the individual person. Whether, you, whether or not you have known it, white supremacy is a system that has granted you unearned privileges, protection, and power. It is also a system that has been designed to keep you asleep and unaware of what having that privilege, protection, and power has meant for people who don't look like you. So part of that desire to disconnect and not pay attention, and I don't recognize it, that is part of the system, y'all. It's the part of it that makes us think it's not happening, it's not there. That's part of what keeps it in place. So I see you all here, connected, inspired, alive, encouraged, acceptance, in awe, hopeful, determined, tense, sad but hopeful, grateful for this community. We're here together. So let's talk about taking action and taking steps for change together. So I'm just going to say this very quickly. One of the things, I was deciding if I was going to say this today or not, but I'm going to say it, that I think very clearly, that is, there's some beautiful work happening in the work against equality and social justice, the work for equality and social justice. But one of the things that I'm seeing in a lot of the work that I want us to be very careful at is while a lot of it is creating a lot of change, a lot of the work that we're seeing by people who are trying to help us in our anti-racist work has this foundation of it of unprocessed anger and rage, understandably. And what I'm saying here, and this is for my African-American people here, we, the work that we're going to have to do to show up for this world differently is to not just express but process our anger and our rage so that it's not in the shadow controlling us from the background. And an example of this is I don't personally believe that all we need to do is become anti-racist. I don't believe in becoming anti-anything. I believe in moving toward something. And what I want us to move toward is ending racism ending it. And what does that mean and what does that look like? Just look at this slide here. I did this in my Ending Racism article. This is what being anti-racist looks like or moving away from or fighting against racism. It can be ending the school-to-prison pipeline, food equity, becoming an anti-racist, dismantling white supremacy, all of that moving in these different directions. And what happens is we end up even more disconnected than we started because now we don't even have this thing in common that we were fighting against. But this is what moving toward something looks like. This is what fighting for something looks like. Do you understand the difference? When you're fighting for something, it automatically includes what you're moving away from. And this is the difference between reactionary activism and visionary activism. What is the future 
that we are stepping into that is greater for all of us, not just for people who are like us, but that's even greater, that helps even the white supremacists, that helps even Donald Trump step deeper into his humanity? What is it, the the future that we can all see that helps all of us step deeper into the humanity and the dignity that is all of our birthright? That's the work that we're here to do. And I'm not shaming or blaming and saying any of the other work is wrong, but I think a lot of these conversations that we're having right now are about race. I'm not interested in having conversations about race. I'm interested in conversations about ending racism. There are lots of conversations about change. There are very few conversations that actually change something. Let us change something. Okay? And so you can see how passionate I am about this right now. And this is what we're getting into. And so a lot of times people say this. They say, well, I I see this in a lot of the work, right? A lot of the writing and a lot of the literature, a lot of the quotes. They say, well, racism can't end. It will probably never end in our generation. It's something that will never end in our generation. Our ancestors have worked their asses off, y'all, for us to be here at this moment. And so the question that I always ask when people say racism can't end in our generation is I say, why not? Why not? Why can't it end? We've done so many incredible things in the world that we've thought were impossible. We've put a man on the freaking moon. Why not? We started this. Racism, just hear me, y'all. Racism is not something that's a condition of the human history. Racism, the word racism, like the invention of even the word, only came about in the last 200 years. Last 150 years, actually. There was not even such thing of the word racism. So I want you to see that just because our lifespan is limited, that this is something that is the modern, a modern day invention and creation of the United States and the people who were involved with slavery. Racism was invented, y'all, in the last several hundred years. We can change this. We created it. We can change it. And so that's what I say. Why not us? Why not now? Why not this generation? And so right now, we're going to talk for in a moment about the liberation experience and talk about the ways that we might create change. But I want you just for a moment now to put your hands over your heart, close your eyes, check in with how you feel. And I would like you not just to check in with how you feel, but out of everything that I shared today, everything that I shared, what's one thing that you'll commit today to sharing with somebody that you know or that you love? Whether it's posting about it on social media, whether it's whatever, what's one golden nugget, one takeaway that you have from today? Think about it, scan your mind, and type it into the chat box. Okay, type into the chat box so we can see the golden nuggets. And right now, as we go into our power action, I'm going to actually do this differently than we usually do. I'm going to give you some options. So let's talk about power actions. So the first thing that I want to talk about is what are you doing individually? Because Robert Masters, who's going to, again, be one of the many guests in the liberation experience with us, including Dan Siegel and Dr. Sarah King and Shelley Tegelski and some incredible people, um, some surprise guests too, is... Robert Masters says the shadow of social justice work, listen, the shadow of social justice work is just doing it on the outside and not doing your work within. 
So it's signing the petitions, posting the things, but not doing any of the individual work. And so what we have to know is individually, even if we don't look as a collective, what we can do is start to do our work with people. One of the things that I don't believe, again, I think this is a shadow of uh, African-American people not having processed our anger. A lot of African-American leaders will tell you, white people, if you're reading me in white supremacy, if you're doing this work, don't post about it. Don't make it about you. Do it in silence. Fuck that. Excuse my French. I don't like to say that on here. No, you don't see the white supremacists not virtue signaling. You don't see the white supremacists being quiet about their work. We need our voices loud. And if people in your family know the books you're reading and the things you're doing, it might inspire them to say, wow, look, all these people around me are reading these books and doing this work. Maybe I should do it too. So don't do your work alone. It doesn't mean you have to create a book club, but just share, use your voice, tell people about the work that you are doing on yourself. Okay, not just the external work, but the work you're doing on yourself. Again, hire people of color to come into your community and do this work with you. If you have churches or organizations or communities or followers online, have a series, do a talk. Again, it's not for you to be teaching it. It's for you to be holding the space and learning in public, learning openly, holding the space for conversation. And a part of what we'll do in the liberation experience is teach you how to bring this work in a way that's authentic to you, because everyone will be different, to your kids, to your families, to your schools, to your workplaces, so that we can each spread the seeds into the corners of the world that we know. And this last one is what I say, is if y'all ain't doing the work, it used to be that you could hide because it was only black people that were calling you out. Listen. The white, me and white supremacy, becoming an anti-racist, all of these have been on the New York Times bestseller list for three months. Now white people are doing the work. And so if you're a white person who thinks, well, I don't know a lot of black people, this doesn't matter for my community, white people are going to call you out. And let me tell you, and I know everybody on here can relate, especially black people, white people who are woke in this movement, they're much more cutthroat about calling people out than black people ever are. <laughs> and so... I've watched huge global leaders, businesses collapse, companies collapse, people get fired because they've chosen to avoid this work and try to put it off till later. If you're putting it off till later, it's already, you, you got to start now. You got to start now. And you're not too late. You're not too late. I almost said that. You're not. Right now. <laughs> and so this brings us into what I want to talk about with you all next which is how we do this work collectively. And this is my first time really officially talking about this, okay? And I see all of your golden nuggets in here, I'm grateful. Talking about it collectively, and I want to announce here from my heart, which I'm so excited about, to talk with you all about the liberation experience. I'm gonna put some music up for this one. <laughs> so, because I'm so excited about it. So, the liberation experience is going to be one of my favorite online programs, actually I'm gonna turn the music off because it's annoying me, that I've ever done, the liberation experience. I want you to think of it like Patrice Cullors meets Eckhart Tolle. Black Lives Matter meets Super Soul Sunday. This is spirituality, wellness, science, personal growth, social justice, and activism combined. Because this is not, it's can't, it can't be all separate. This is all combined. And so this is all of it unified together in one place. And this is not just another online course. It's not an online course. It is online, but it is a six-week 
virtual fellowship. It's a fellowship to help you change your life and lead change in the world at the same time. And in this experience, I'm introducing something that I've been working on for the last three months, and this is my first time really talking about it, called the Infinity Model. The Infinity Model works like this. We start the group as one. And when you apply to the program, you will self-identify yourself as either black, indigenous, a person of color, or white identified. And we start the group all together as one. And then we split into what I'm calling infinity groups, a play on affinity groups, based upon race. And they're called infinity because affinity groups is about us just being separate. In infinity groups, we separate and we come back together. Sometimes black people and white people do their work alone. Sometimes they do it together, but we are always doing it side by side. And sometimes we even doing it, we even do it in a fishbowl where black people are watching white people atone and do their work. And white people are watching black people do their work and atone all virtually, all online. And most importantly, this is one of my favorite parts of it, is there are full scholarships available for those in need. And so I do not want money to be why you don't join this program. And for people who want to give, we're also giving you the opportunity to give scholarships to those who are in need. And we call this a virtual fellowship because this isn't a a bystander sport. It doesn't mean you have to come live, but we're breaking you into small groups. Each group is going to have a trained facilitator. And we're having special guests come in to do actual exercises and practices with you. You're going to have a PDF workbook that you'll have to go along with it so that by the end of this program, you're not just changed yourself. You haven't just got experiences from across the divide. You haven't just met people in the community who are like you, but you find your own authentic way to bring this into your circles of influence. On the website, you'll see we use this this metaphor of a, a wave. You'll see pictures of waves. And that's because I can't do this work alone. I'm not gonna end racism alone. It's each of us spreading this, the seeds of change into the corners of the world that only we can reach, that only we can touch. And it's about you learning how. We're actually gonna give you conversation templates to have conversations with your resigned black friends and family members, your homophobic coworkers, your white family members who are racist and may support Trump and don't get it. We're giving you conversation templates that I'm building with experts to help you do it. This is about action. You know, Shelly Tegelski, who's one of the people in the program, is so incredible. And one of the things that she says that I love that we use everywhere is with enough pebbles thrown into the pond, a ripple becomes a wave. And my prayer here today is that we all may be the waves of change that we seek. (laughs) So I'm so grateful and so excited about this. So let me tell you all how to get into it. Okay, I'll put the link in the chat box, but I want to tell you all how to become a part of it. Just skipping ahead. Is this. You go to justinmichaelwilliams.com slash liberation and the application you have to apply it's not a long application it's short 
And it's not an application to try to kick you in and out. It's just to make sure that we're setting ourselves up to hold the container and we have an idea of what perspectives are coming in. So when you're applying, don't think that you have to like prove anything to us. It's just so that we know. And the applications are going to open this week, but the pe- we have a limited space because we want to keep these groups really tight. And so I'm announcing this to y'all here so that you can get on the wait list right now. And we already have over 300 people on the wait list. Go get on the wait list because we're announcing the application to the wait list first and then to the general public. All right. And again, there are scholarships available for everyone who's in need. So in closing, (laughs) I come back to this little guy. And I think about him as a child. And it makes me think of our future generations and the children of the world, of my nieces, of maybe children if I end up having them, of the children's children and all the children out in the world now and the children who are yet to be born. And as Layla Saad so beautifully says, our job here is to be a good ancestor, to leave this world better than we got it to show up for ourselves, our families, for this future generations, and to heal the generations forward and backward. I feel emotional. And I love you. And this is the work that we, we, this community, are going to spearhead and do together. So I hope you will join us in the liberation experience and allow your life to change allow you to change the lives of others. In closing today, I'm going to share a song, and I'm actually going to play a song for you, a video of a song that I did with the brothers Corin, who are going to be special guests on this kingdom very soon. They're the people who I wrote my album with. And this is a song called The Turning. And I want you right now, as you listen to this song, to feel it in your heart. Before we go to it, let's do one final check-in together. Maybe this will be our second to last check-in. Hands over the heart. Take a breath in. Breath out. Again, a breath in. And a breath out. Type in, how do you feel? And this song will be a prayer and a dedication to all of us as we turn the tides and become the waves of change that we seek. This is The Turning, featuring Brothers Corin. This is for all of us to come together. It's time to unite for human rights. The door is open, now ever so slight. The backs of great souls who die for the cause as victory rides on sacred laws. The cops can no longer erase the laws they once put into place. Our time has eyes, digital spies, visions captured, the lens does not lie. Discrimination is killing the nations. Breaking hearts of the young generation Is this the best we can leave behind? A world where the blind lead the fearful blind Listen to the sound of the turning tide 
so much and this is the power of justice the justice that we will only create in our hearts if we dive deep and do the revolutionary work from the inside out it's a great honor and a privilege to be on this journey of life with you all I'm checking in with myself right now and what I feel most is love is love 
love you all so much. It really means the world, this community that we're building together. And last but not least, you know that I say it over and over and over because I mean it, is we rise together. This is the kingdom, the kingdom that shines. We rise together and together we rise. I love you and I'll see you right here in this special place next Sunday. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Kingdom Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to rate it or subscribe. But most importantly, to send this episode to a friend or to someone you love. The only way we're going to see change in this world is by each of us spreading messages of hope into the corners of the world where only you can reach. So send this today to someone who needs it. I'm sure they'll thank you for it. This is Justin Michael Williams signing out. I love you. And I'll meet you right here in this special place in our next episode where we rise.